following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. So it is my privilege to get to introduce you today uh, our guest speaker, Dr. Christina LaSalle-Peterson. She is an associate professor of religion at Houghton College, and you can read uh, her bio on your bulletin. But she teaches several classes there, such as gender and the church, uh, women in the Bible, the history of Christianity, and things of that nature. Um, so I think you've spoken here twice before, is that right? And I actually wasn't part of Artisan at the time, but from people that were here, uh, the summary is that she's simply brilliant. So we really are um, fortunate to have her here with us this morning. So would you join me in walk- welcoming Dr. Christina LaSalle Peterson? Thanks. I don't feel any pressure, you know, <laughs> living up to brilliant. Um, it's funny, one of my friends is part of a very large church, and one time the senior pastor keeled over in the pulpit, um, and he didn't die, um, but he couldn't finish his sermon, and about eight months later, he was back in the pulpit, and he said, well, as I was saying, and he continued on with his, his sermon, and it was funny, I was getting ready for this, and I realized I preached here probably eight years ago on Mary Magdalene, and I accidentally picked Mary Magdalene again, so as I was saying... <laughs> Back then, um, oh, fantastic. I titled this sermon, Living with Our Eyes Wide Open. Um, And just before we begin, I'd like to read a psalm and and pray together, and then we'll look at, at Mary a little bit. So this is from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, they shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you join us in our worship and that you desire to meet with us and pray that we would be open to what your word has for us in this time that we share. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mary Magdalene, who was she and what can we learn from her for our journey of faith? And the first thing is, of course, to get out of the way the misconceptions about Mary that she has lived with for all these centuries. Um, Mary Magdalene, in the scriptural text, was not a prostitute, right? I mean, I hope people know that. She wasn't a prostitute, right? She was a woman from whom seven demons had been cast out, we find out in Luke 8. Um, She was considered a central disciple, and we see this in the story uh, as it unfolds, her following Jesus around the countryside, her being at the cross, going to the tomb, and then also seeing Jesus uh, after his resurrection. But the thing is, about 600 years after Jesus' life, a very famous pope, Pope Gregory, conflated a number of biblical stories. So you have the story of, 
um, Mary of Bethany washing Jesus' feet. And then you have a story in Luke 7 whoops, of a sinful woman washing Jesus' feet. And then you have in Luke 8 the story of Mary Magdalene being healed of seven demons and Jesus uh, welcoming her into his band of disciples. So all these stories were conflated and sort of, you know, Mary, Mary, and you put them together and you wind up with Mary the prostitute, even though in Luke 7 the, the, unnamed, uh, the woman is unnamed. So the Catholic Church for many, many years has considered Mary the, the redeemed prostitute. And if you know anything about medieval art, you know, you go to art museums, Mary is always depicted as young and sort of half-redeemed prostitute um, in how she's dressed. But in the 1960s, the Catholic Church finally got around to realizing and um, they expunged all the references in liturgy to Mary as a prostitute. And the Eastern Orthodox Church never considered her a prostitute. In, in fact, they, can, they call her the myrrh-bearer. She's always depicted as a faithful disciple who shows up at the tomb with myrrh to anoint Jesus' body. So if we stick to what the Bible says about Mary, we don't have a sinful woman but a very broken person. Um, seven demons. We don't know what that meant for her, except for it probably meant there were a lot of things wrong with her. There were a lot of reasons why Mary's life was broken um, and in need of Jesus. It might be that she couldn't marry if, her, if one of her demons was, um, you know, some people think mental illness or, or a demon possession that, that left her so unusual that she couldn't marry or divorced because she wasn't normal. Um, but what we do know is Mary is an unattached woman who, when she encounters Jesus, can give up everything. So she's probably not a young woman. She's probably not childbearing age with children at home. She's probably somewhat older, maybe even his mother's age. Um, heavens, like 40. Um, <laughs> who, can, who has the leisure to follow Jesus around. <clears throat> and I think, you know, the first thing I think about when, I, when you read a story about Jesus touching someone and healing them from seven demons who tormented her um, is what binds me when I read this story? What, what demons in my life, if I encountered Jesus on the road, would he say, you need to be freed of that? So the first question for us is, what would Jesus free us from? And sometimes, you know, Jesus asks people, what do you want to be freed from? What, what do you want me to do for you? So the question for us is, what do we want Jesus to do from, for us? And I think it's significant that Jesus only explains one time what his death is going to mean. He doesn't have this full-blown discussion, theological discussion of atonement, but he says in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And ransom, of course, is buying you out of slavery. So Jesus says, what I came to do is to free you. And the question is, what do we need to be freed from? What inhibits us from living the life of flourishing that God created us for? So Jesus frees Mary. And unfortunately, we don't have a picture in the scripture of, of that encounter. I wish we did, kind of. 
We just have the statement that she's someone who Jesus freed from, from demon possession. Whatever maladies plagued her body and her mind and her spirit, Jesus freed her from, and she's so relieved that she follows him around. She follows him around the countryside with his band of disciples. She supports him out of her own money, maybe that she inherited, maybe she was a widow and she had this money. Um, And Luke 8 gives us also the name of some other women who join Jesus' band of disciples and support him. Jesus welcomes her. He welcomes all the men and women who chose to follow him around the countryside. Jesus invited them and invites us to the road. And I think this must have been a delightful time. And and maybe you know this. If you were a recent convert and the the sort of excitement and the newness and there's so much to learn and everything is exciting and, and wonderful and the following is very joyful. You've given up everything to follow Jesus. And I think for Mary, this was a whole new way of hearing about God. It's not a bunch of rules to follow. It's not a series of warnings about stepping out of line. It's no depictions of God as a killjoy or a police officer in the sky. Jesus' preaching is full of the love of God and the invitation of God, and I want to free you from what binds you. It's a wonderful stage in the journey. I think it's a time for Mary of living with her eyes wide open, learning all the time. But then, in Mary's life, we have this cataclysmically horrible event, right? Her life of being bound, which was horrible, and then being freed, which is wonderful, has now brought her to the cross and all its horror and all its life-shattering disappointment. How could this be happening? Which is the quintessential human question, right? How could this be happening to me, whatever it is in our lives? She stands at the cross and watches all her hopes die. The one who had freed her, the one who had given her a new life and new hope. And I think some of the fishermen from Galilee, well, we know what happens to them, right? They go back to Galilee and start fishing again. They don't know what to do. But Mary doesn't have a life to go back to. She wasn't employed being demon-possessed, right? She can't go back to something. So she has one plan. She's going to go on the Sabbath and anoint his body with spices. She's going to be the myrrh-bearer which is what it comes down to in our moments of desperation, right? You can only think of the very next step. Here's the very next step. This is all I know to do, and I'm going to do it. So she follows Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb after Jesus is taken down from the cross so that when the time came, she would know where to go. And she's the only person, in fact, in the Gospels that's mentioned at the cross and at the burial and at the resurrection. She's the... She has nothing else to do but follow Jesus. So she's so intent on this one thing. She goes before dawn. You know the story. It's still dark, which is a dangerous thing to do, right? A woman alone in the dark. That in itself is dangerous. The fact that she's visiting the grave of an executed criminal, that's often considered treasonous to do, kind of dangerous. And she's at the tomb alone, We don't know where all the other disciples were, all the other women. 
Mary, the mother, was probably at home because Jewish custom prohibited her from going out for about seven days. So she's off the hook. But Mary Magdalene goes and discovers the stone rolled away. And I think she must have looked in because she reports to Peter and John that the body is gone. And if somebody had rolled the stone away to steal stuff, they wouldn't have stolen the body, right? They would have seen if Jesus' family had thought to bury him with anything expensive that they could cart away. So she looks in, she sees the body is gone, and she runs and tells Peter that the body has been removed. So Peter and the beloved disciple, John, come, look, and leave. And she stays in the garden. She goes back and looks inside the tomb. And the story is just full of looking and seeing and seeking. What does she see? She sees angels. And Peter and John had just looked in there, and they didn't see angels. Strange. And why are there angels? They don't do what angels usually do. You know, angels in Scripture usually proclaim something from God. That's their job. That their, the word even is related to the word for message, messenger. They don't tell her anything. They don't tell her that Jesus is risen from the dead. They ask her a question. Do you remember what the question is? It's really bizarre. Here's a woman at a tomb, and they say, Why are you weeping? Well... She doesn't come out with a sarcastic response. Maybe she was just too grief-stricken. But she also doesn't say, oh, I thought he was going to be the Messiah, but as it turns out, he's not, and I don't know what to do. No, she says, they have taken away my Lord. She states his present role in her life in the middle of the darkest moment. The worst thing that has ever happened to her She hangs on to this truth, that Jesus is her Lord. She can't make sense of what's going on, but she also doesn't let go. Maybe her answer sets the stage for Jesus showing up. So she responds to the angels. She's distraught. She's desperate. But she's affirming her faith, and then she turns and she sees him. Or she sees a man that she thinks is the gardener. And here's the next question for me. Why can't she recognize Jesus? She's such a close follower. She's been following. It's like being on a camping trip for three years or a a missions trip. You ever been on a short-term missions trip with people for three weeks? You get to know a lot about them, but you do know what they look like, at least. They've been following Jesus around. And when he shows up, she doesn't know who he is. And some people say, well, maybe her eyes were too swollen from crying Maybe she was being the the good Jewish woman and she doesn't look up into his face. Maybe it's just too good to be true, so it's somebody who looks kind of like him, but he's dead, it can't be. But it might be from Jesus' side of things, right? Like the, the time that Jesus is walking to them on the water and Peter says, is that you, Lord? Like who else would be walking to him on the water? And the way he learns that it is, is what Jesus says, which is, okay, get out of the boat then. You'll see. But also, the the two disciples on the way from Emmaus, or to Emmaus, from Jerusalem, after Jesus has died, they don't recognize him. He talks to them for a long time, and they can't see him until he breaks bread with them. And maybe it's how it always is, that in our disappointment, Jesus seems absent He seems silent. 
But we affirm our faith despite the fact that we can't recognize him in the moment. Maybe we have turned around and seen him but not seen him. In fact, I think the Bible has lots of stories where people can't recognize God's presence. You know, if we think back to the Old Testament, um, the visitors who come to Abraham and Sarah, Sarah laughed at their message because she didn't know who it was. Jacob wrestled with somebody and tried to get somebody's name and didn't know who it was. Moses hears a, a voice from the burning bush. Who should I tell him sent me? What? But especially Jesus. John tells us in the, in the first chapter. He came to his own and his own just didn't recognize him. He was so incarnated. He was like the missionary who lives so much at the level of the people they forget he's from somewhere else. People missed his birth in Bethlehem. People in Nazareth let their kids play with him. You just imagine. Yeah, you can go over to that Jesus house. He's a pretty nice kid. You should be more like him probably. You know. <laughs> Do your homework. Don't use bad words. They were clueless about his identity, right? So when he comes as an adult and he reads the scroll in his hometown, and they say, whoa, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, we knew him all the time. We didn't know he was something special. He's among them all the time. He's among us all the time. God is at work all around us, binding up the brokenhearted comforting the weak, drawing in the lost. It's just that sometimes it's hard to see. Sometimes we're like the neighbors of Jesus and we simply don't know what's going on next door. He's right here, but we don't know what he's doing in the world. C.S. Lewis once said, Miracles are a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. And I love that image. It's just this huge drama of God that sometimes is hard to see the big picture of. Sometimes we have to take time to remember, and that's obviously what we do on Sunday mornings. We come to remember together that God is always at work, sometimes in hugely unexpected ways, or in humble ways, or in ways that we don't understand, or ways that we can't see. In Advent, we talk about Emmanuel, God with us. We remember God coming in the humblest of circumstances, in the smallest activities of our lives. In Lent, we remember that Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, walks with us in our darkness, through the valley of the shadow of death. That God is at work even in the darkest moment of history. As Luther says, God is hidden at the cross as he accomplishes his greatest work. He's closer than our own breath, loving us more deeply than the people sitting next to us. Emmanuel, God with us even to the end of the age. There's never a moment when he's not holding us, drawing us to to him, holding us in the palm of his hand. Sometimes it's a matter of taking it on faith like Mary, when we can't see or we can't recognize Jesus. We don't have any certainty or proof. But in the history of the church, the sensation of God being hidden is something that people wrote about all the time. It's considered a normal part of the the walk of faith. Sometimes we have these 
glittering moments of insight and closeness, and sometimes we walk through a cloud. That's just normal. So we forget to talk about that cloud part because we don't really like it. And I think even John the Baptist had this. You know, the story of John the Baptist was in prison, and he sends his disciples to Jesus and to, to ask this question. Are you the one, or should we wait for someone else? John the Baptist couldn't see Jesus. And the psalmist asks, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? From Psalm 13. Sometimes our prayers seem to go nowhere. Maybe you've had that experience. Something like the writer of Lamentations also felt when he wrote, You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. God doesn't really wrap himself in a cloud so our prayers can't get through. But it's a poetic way of saying this is what it feels like sometimes. My prayers just can't make it. So if God draws us down this road and sometimes it's bright and sometimes it's dark, how do we handle it? Certainly there's no one-size-fits-all spirituality. Jesus, thankfully, interacted with everybody as individuals. But I think there are a few things we can learn from the history of the church. Excuse me. And one of those suggestions is to, to get a bigger picture. Sometimes the narrow walls of our own life are not enough, and we need to ask What is God doing in this world? How can I live with my eyes wide open to what's going on? We're part of this huge story that stretches from creation and before until new creation that God is inviting us to participate in. The purposes of God are being worked out despite how bad the news is on the news, right? And God is inviting us to participate in this unfolding drama, to be part of this whole thing. Henry Nouwen once said, The Eucharist calls us to be, and this is quoting him, continuously aware of our role in the sacred story of God's redemptive presence through all the generations. The great temptation of our lives is to deny our role as chosen people and so allow ourselves to be trapped in the worries of our daily lives. Without the word that keeps lifting us up as God's chosen people, we remain or become small people, stuck in the complaints that emerge from our daily struggle to survive. Without the word, Jesus, we remain little people with little concerns who live little lives and die little deaths. So getting the big picture. Often it's also in the following that we remember that we're disciples. Maybe you've had this temptation, I know I have, when I'm stuck and when I'm in this cloud, I just want to sit down until it clears, right? Because when you're walking, sometimes that's the safest thing to do, or driving. If it's a really, really foggy night, sometimes it's better just to pull over than it is to drive. But in this case, often walking by faith and not by sight is what is called for, right? Walking in the dark. We engage in the spiritual disciplines that people, millions of Christians through the ages have engaged in in order to open ourselves, open our eyes to what God is doing in our lives and in this world. And, and you're probably familiar, there's, there's sort of two different types of spiritual disciplines. The one 
um, set are, are called the, the disciplines of renunciation. And, and sometimes we, we have people joking around about the ascetics who go out into the desert and do crazy things. You know, they weave baskets and they sleep on rocks and sometimes they sit on pillars for 40 years. And, and yes, people did all those things. But the point wasn't to be crazy and do those things. The point was to renounce the comforts of life in order to remember to hear the voice of God. But then there are the disciplines of engagement. And sometimes those are even harder. Maybe fasting once a week is easier than a discipline of engagement that might mean going out and doing something for your neighbor whom you don't particularly like. For instance, if we were to be honest, maybe there are people in your life, as there are in mine, that are more difficult to like and love than others. Disciplines of engagement require us to actively uh, engage in discipleship, reaching out to people around us who are lonely, who are desperate, who could suck away a lot of hours even in our busy schedules, people who could use a cheerful word or email or text, a caring act. I think sometimes faith reemerges in the doing. Sometimes it's only in dry obedience that we learn to take our eyes off ourselves and look again to Jesus. And obviously this can be taken too far into a sort of mindless activism substituting for faith. But I think often we just sit down when we need to get up and be obedient. We know God as we learn to follow We imitate the one, whether or not it feels wonderful. On the other hand, so we have the disciplines of engagement. On the other hand, sometimes we're called just to wait. The writer of Lamentations reminds us, it is good to wait. The thought of my affliction and my my homelessness is my wormwood and gall, he says. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the souls that seek him. It's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord, but waiting can be really, really hard. I remember the first time I heard Augustine's words, they also serve who only sit and wait. And I thought, oh, God, don't assign me that job of just sitting and waiting. But sometimes that's all there is. Sometimes we're engaging in the means of grace, the the disciplines of renunciation or engagement, devotions, public worship, service to God, but we're stuck. Something, sometimes there's nothing to do but to wait for it to pass. Kind of like grief. You can't really hurry it, right? It's just there. And you walk through it until you're on the other side. You're changed, and your reality is different, but grief is past. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote, Oh God, oh my God, deep calls to deep. The deep of my profound misery calls to the deep of your infinite mercy. So sometimes we just keep walking one step at a time, hoping that eventually the darkness will clear. But getting back to Mary, Jesus stands there behind her, 
and she turns to see. And he asks her the same question the angels did, the really obvious question, why are you weeping? And I don't read it as a, a criticism. I read it as an invitation. Just like God always knows what's going on in our hearts, but still asks us, what, what do you want and what do you need? And why are you weeping? A comforting question. And then he follows it up with, whom are you looking for? Which is an interesting thing because it's the same exact question that he asks two disciples who are trying to become his disciples. They're disciples of John who decide to follow Jesus at the beginning of John's gospel. They're following him around and he says, whom are you looking for? It's the, it's the question he asks would-be disciples. And he asks Mary again here at the end. Here's this newly re- resurrected Jesus inviting her into a renewed discipleship. And it's such a great question for all of us. Whom are we looking for? Who or what do we get into our heads we need to make us happy or successful as citizens of this country or as church people, Christians? In our extreme moments, what do we think will save us and change our lives? So she treats him like the gardener who would know what she meant if she said, If you have taken away his body, please show me where you have laid him. And then he speaks her name. And as you know, in that moment, she knows him. So in Luke 24, the two on the way to Emmaus, they don't know him until he breaks the bread. And in this case, she knows him when he says her name, Mary. John 10 says that the shepherd will call his sheep, and the sheep will know his name. Uh, the, sh- the shepherd will know the name of the sheep, that nobody can snatch him out of his hand. So Jesus calls her by name. Mary is one of those who has been gathered by the good shepherd. And each of us has been. Each of us has been called by name. So she does the most fitting thing. She falls down at his feet and worships him in utter joy and relief. For six months, many years ago, I worked with refugees in a little village about an hour north of the Alps. And the funny thing was, the way the air currents were, it was always a little bit foggy on the horizon, and you could never see the mountains. And I'd been living there for about four months, and people would say, oh, someday, you know, you're going to get the most stunning view of the Alps. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, after being there for four months, so what's that, like, you know, 120 days I had of only seeing the clouds and and the nice rolling hills and farmland. It was very pastoral, beautiful. But I didn't believe. And part of it was my soul was very worn down. It's hard to work with refugees. Incredibly needy people. Devastated people, actually. Forced out of their homelands, then in this, this host land where they're treated like dogs, Then they apply for visas to the U.S. and they can't get them because of lies that people have told about them. It's just just one thing after another. They're just, their lives just ravaged. And my soul cried out, how long, O Lord, how long? Why are you so absent? Why is my whole life so gray? 
And you can guess what happened. One morning, I was running out of my apartment, and I was teaching English, which is another whole story. Um, and I came out of the door, and 180 degrees worth of snow-capped mountains with the sun on them. I mean, I never literally felt what that phrase meant to have my breath taken away, but my, my breath just caught. It's like so staggeringly beautiful. It was there all the time behind the clouds. And interestingly, I went down and I taught my class, and an hour later I came back and it was all gone. It was just the clouds sitting on the rolling hills. Sometimes we have to live in that haze and we don't get to see the mountains. Even when we know they're there, even in our minds. Like I knew the whole time. I literally could look at a map and say, okay, I have to be able to see these mountains because I can look on a map and see they're only 60 miles away. But after all of our questions and all of our doubts and all of our lonely cries to God, are you the one and how long, O oh Lord, how long, God will come. God will renew our hope in gentle nudges or in moments of stunning clarity. And we should hold those to our souls to look at when it's dark again. Of course, for Mary and for us, the moments of wonder are not the end. They're the beginning. Life is not just fantastic experiences with Jesus. I'm sure you all know that. Mary is entering a new stage. Jesus has invited her to participate in, her, in his great work in the world. He asks her to let go of him and bring the good news to the other disciples. This is an amazing request, right? This soul woman going and telling the disciples, I just saw a resurrected body, Jesus. And of course, it's the same invitation made to us as well. Life as a disciple of Jesus means following after him and doing his work. It means being invited to become part of his glorious drama, the drama of reconciliation in this world. It can and does take a million different forms. Not everyone has to be an evangelist or a plumber or a doctor, but we're all called to bear the presence of Christ with us into every corner of the world that we're part of. And none of us knows how our lives will go, what will unfold. But we affirm that God has invited us, even instructed us, to be part of his kingdom and to act as his agents in this world. So Mary Magdalene was faithful. She goes back and tells the disciples what Jesus told her to say. And her last recorded words are, I have seen the Lord. Fantastic. So living with our eyes wide open, if we think about the stages in Mary's life, the first stage being bound. Any of us, many of us, all of us, have experienced some form of being bound. Bound by circumstances or lack of money or doubt or loss of a job, illness, perhaps most of all by sin and the brokenness that has been offered to us in this broken world. And like Mary, maybe some of us today need new release and freedom. May we all know the sweet freedom that Jesus can bring into a life 
over and over again. And may we each know times of joyful following, learning about life and about love and about God in new ways, learning how to be a loving follower, the Christian person that God has created you to be. But as we all know, there will be disappointments. Life may be not as shattering, life experiences may be not as shattering as, as going to the cross, but still disappointments that loom large. Life hasn't turned out how you thought it would, or people have failed you, or faith simply seems cold. In those times, may you affirm with Mary that Jesus is still your Lord. He is still the one to whom you turn, even if everything is dark and confusing or seems wrong. May we engage in the disciplines, both of renunciation and engagement, along the journey so that these dark times don't throw us for a loop. And may we each live with our eyes wide open to those encounters with Jesus at surprising moments of our lives. May we turn and see him there. May we hear his words of sympathy. Why are you weeping? And his invitation to renewed discipleship. Whom do you seek? May we hear him call our name over and above the disappointments and the joys the stresses and the busyness of our lives. Finally, may we embrace deep in ourselves the invitation that Jesus gives us to be part of his grand unfolding drama. Whatever form that takes for you, may you understand the outline of your life in terms of his story. May you be able to say, I have seen the, the Lord May we hear the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. And I'm entrusting this huge, glorious mission to you. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving God, for all of us, help us to live with our eyes wide open to who you are, in our lives, who you are in the context of this community of faith, and who you are in this exquisite and yet broken world. For those of us who wonder if you are, wrap us in your gentle presence. For those of us who are so busy, we have a hard time hearing your voice, or too overwhelmed by the stuff in our lives, Please speak up. For those of us who simply can't see through the darkness, teach us patience and humility and faith that holds on when all is still and dark and quiet. But refresh us with a new sense of your presence, Lord Jesus. And as we interact with each other, help us honestly to tell and lovingly listen to the struggles of each other's souls. May we hold your light for one another. May we be the arms of your embrace to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. As his friends, Jesus invites us to his table. Just as he did on the night when he was going to be betrayed, he sat at the table with a bunch of sinners, right? 
It wasn't a bunch of redeemed people who had their lives all squeaky clean who came to his table. It was Judas and Peter and Thomas. It was broken people who didn't quite know what it meant, and yet he invited them, and in the same way invites us. We're broken, we're sinful, we're needy, we're joyful, we're happy to be invited. So we come to this table, like millions of other Christians around the world and through the ages, to say, I am part of this family, I am part of this body, I am part of this grand narrative that Jesus invites us to. So come, eat this bread, drink this wine, join in with Jesus at his table. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.